Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where there are no sound effects except this one. Thank you, Rodney. Turned into Russ Whitehead all of a sudden. I have no idea who that is. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. He's, he's Mr. Movie Phone. Mr. Movie Phone here. Ah. Yeah. My name is Whitney Seibold. Uh, I am a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname. I'm just Whitney Seibold. And if you would like to hear the rest of this episode, press one. To press one, press two. To press three, stay on the line. I'm wondering. I mean, it's, movie phone has been moribund for quite some time now. I'm wondering yeah. if people even relate to that experience anymore of mm. calling this recording service yeah. to find out movie time is near you. Yeah, there didn't used like to be... Pre, pre-smartphone era. Pre-smartphones? Well, just pre-internet being something that literally everyone had in their house and like mm. didn't have dial-up so that like they had to like take themselves functionally offline incommunicado in order to check emails. People used to only use the internet for like maybe an hour a day just yeah, because you need it, it to your phone, phone yeah yeah people just needed to talk yeah. to you and that was the way that they did it so the idea of movie phone was if you like didn't have a newspaper handy and you wanted to know when a movie was playing nearby you would just go boop 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 777 film well i meant after you dialed the number then there would be like please type in the first three letters of the movie you would like to see and you would be like G-O-D for Godzilla versus mm. Kong. And they were like, did you mean God's Not Dead 3? No. Did you mean God Free My Man? <laughs> the remake of... No! Stop it. Yeah, and it, it was always difficult to sort of suss it out, uh, depending on your connection. If you were on a mobile phone, sometimes you'd drop out, or you it wouldn't read your touchstones. I remember uh, trying to find out what was playing nearby, and uh, and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, uh, pulled out her, her mobile phone, little flip phone, and we couldn't get the title we wanted up. And just in, in utter comic frustration, she just, like, mashed her knuckles against the button saying, no, 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 no. And then uh, we heard over the speakerphone, you have selected Norbit. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Don't punish us. And now you're legally required to go see Norbit. <laughs> you just purchased 50 tickets. <laughs> Damn it. All right, well, start calling friends and get the, get the vodka. Yeah, it was a weird time 20 years ago. God, I'm old. Uh, anyway, this week on Critically Acclaimed, we're reviewing the new releases Godzilla vs. Kong about endlessness, which is a movie title. It's not like Godzilla vs. Kong about endlessness. Like, they have a long-standing debate about the concept of endlessness. And also, there's a movie called This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. And on the critically acclaimed streaming club, where we are reviewing uh, movies on various streaming services that are not new, but since we're watching movies at home anyway, we might as well check out the older films on those services so that they don't get overlooked in favor of just the new freshness. Uh, We're talking about Lizzie Borden's really quite stunning mockumentary slash dystopian political feminist screed weird underground underground radio lesbian punk rock kind of which uh, weirdly prophesied the future in a lot of ways not not weirdly it just never stopped you know my point is is that it's it's Mm. like you feel like it could have been made now Mm. uh it is called born in flames and it is currently on ovid 
Uh, however, it is also on Criterion Channel. So if you yeah. don't have Ovid, you can also check it out there. And we'll talk about that on the last uh, segment of the show. Uh, but first, uh, we've got a couple of giant monsters that want to punch each mm-hmm. other a lot. Uh, Godzilla versus Kong. I'm glad it's not Godzilla v. Kong. Because that's a legal brief. I Batman never, and Superman never went to court. So I, uh, I hate that. Yeah. I and I've even heard like people like on this on like who made the movie Batman mm-hmm. v Superman saying no, it's supposed to be verses. And I'm like, then you should have written verses because you put V mm-hmm. and V means V, and that's what you call it in a legal brief. And that's the only time you use V, mm-hmm. which means Batman v Superman is Batman suing Superman, no. which I would like to see. That's a, get Aaron Sorkin to write that script. <laughs> I want to see that movie. That, that, that sounds like a good movie. It would have been pretty lie. terrific, uh, Batman v Superman in court. Um, and, you know, colloquially, in our f- circle of friends, we would have called it Batman v Superman. So people are calling this one uh, Godzilla v Kong just for just for brevity's sake. I haven't heard anyone call it. But, I've heard some people right. call it Godzilla versus Kong. Right. I've actually heard a lot of people, it's so weird because, like, it's, it's Godzilla versus Kong. Hmm. But Kong is the protagonist monster. Godzilla actually isn't in it all that much. You know, I, Shouldn't it be strong. King Kong versus Godzilla? Wouldn't that be fair? Well, we already have a film called King Kong versus Godzilla, which came out in the 60s. <laughs> we already had a couple yeah. of movies called Godzilla, but that didn't stop uh, him in like 2013 uh, or whatever it was. Yeah, 2013, 1998. It's happened yeah. a couple times. Why uh, not? Who uh, cares? Uh, but yeah, Godzilla versus Kong, uh, I guess it just draws on the tradition of Godzilla movies where all the, the Godzilla movies were called Godzilla versus monster of the week. And, yeah. um, so that, that's the nomenclature. This is the fourth film in the American series of, uh, Godzilla movies that started in 2013. Uh, mm-hmm. then there was also, uh, Kong colon skull Island, mm-hmm. which was set in the seventies. And they mm-hmm. explained in that one that Kong was still growing. Yeah. He was like a young young ape which is why he was a normal kong size in that movie but in this new movie he's the size of godzilla godzilla size he's like taller than buildings which is fine um Uh, just just for sake of context how did you feel about the original monster verse godzilla movie i don't care about these movies like you have no opinions on either of them kong Kong skull island was pretty good like it has like a little bit of style to it i liked the 70s soundtrack they tried to make a little bit of like 70s movies tropes some of the monster yeah. stuff was pretty fun that first godzilla movie is not good um it's just mm. just sort of a dull slog i think it's, it's I not think... you know people have talked about oh the scale the scale of it it doesn't really land i think roland I... emmerich did a better, chance, nah, a better I... job of like communicating the scale of the monster we, we can have that discussion uh, if you want i actually and... do think that the uh gareth edwards uh kong is or Godzilla. I'm sorry, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla. It's so late and I'm so tired. Uh, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla is, I agree. I actually agree with people who say like the scale of it's impressive. Mm-hmm. Like you do get the sense of sheer enormity mm-hmm. of Godzilla in that one in a way that some Godzilla movies, even the originals, just forget to capture sometimes. And I really, really like that. As a movie, it's barely okay. Mm-hmm. But I, I can appreciate it as a mm-hmm. spectacle. Kong Skull Island, I mostly agree. I think it's actually a very fun movie to watch. Mm. It's a little thin, but yeah, as no, a PG-13 Apocalypse Now with a giant ape in it, cool. Yeah, <laughs> actually, that's that's a good pitch. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's not bad. 
there's a scene where Kong eats a live octopus and people thought it was a reference to old boy where he eats a live squid. Maybe it is. Sure. Maybe it is. It uh, might also be a reference to King Kong versus Godzilla, the original in which Kong fights, a, fights giant a giant octopus, octopus yeah. which was actually just like stock footage of an octopus yeah. with uh, actors on green screen in front of it. Surprisingly effective actually. Um, and then uh, the, that, that's a great movie actually. I like King Kong versus Godzilla. We'll talk about but, that in a minute. I just watched that in its entirety for the very first time this week. Uh-huh. Great movie might be overstepping its bounds. Great movie. I will we'll, stand by that. We'll talk about that in a minute. Then there was uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters, which is bloated and yet also somehow incredibly thin. It's like, yeah, it's it's really forgettable. Uh, there's And it commits that sin that uh, this is something Pacific Rim also did. Um, mm. And a lot of action films tend to do. They, in order to sort of maybe hide the fact that they don't have good special effects... They set a lot of the action sequences at night in the rain or in the snow, and you can't see a lot of I it. I feel like they're trying to show off how complicated the visual effects are, and like, mm. no, I just want to see everything. Yeah, it's like, oh, look, we added all the smoke. Yeah, I can't see the monsters. Yeah, it's, maybe, it's maybe, too, maybe too there should the be there should be less realism in this movie about a giant radioactive dinosaur and a three-headed golden hydra from space. I, I will say this: there are moments and fight scenes in Godzilla: King of the Monsters. That I think are chef's kiss cool mm. looking. There are moments when King the CGI and King Ghidorah looks mm. so amazing, I could have sworn it was stop motion. <laughs> That's a backhanded compliment, uh, but it is a compliment. I do mean it. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, they set up a whole bunch of stuff in there that could be used for future movies. They forgot almost all of it in this one, yeah, which is really hilarious for me. They set up Mothra. Mothra doesn't come back. Thought that was kind of a bummer. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and so now uh, Godzilla, at the end of that movie, sort of solidified himself as king of the monsters. Well, and him. all the other monsters were like, like it, was like the, it was like the beginning of the Lion King. Like, all the other monsters were just yeah. sort of like, oh, wow. I guess he's the fucking king. Uh, mm. Salute you, buddy. Mm. Like, oh, you, you really want us to bow? Mm. Really? No. All right, he'll kick our ass if we don't. All right, everyone bow. All right, cool. Everybody cool. bow. You know what? Just, just bring me some gin. Yeah. Godzilla is just going to go boost it up as he walks back out into the ocean. Uh, in this one, uh, it's established, and and I mean this in in the warmest possible way. This has the story and the logical thinking of like an eight year old. Yeah. In, in terms of the way the monsters relate to each other and the way this universe is set up, and all of these weird science fiction things that are just sort of thrown at you without any. It's almost an alarmingly stupid movie, actually. In a lot well, of ways. Well, and and yeah. here here's the thing. When it gets really stupid, that's when I started enjoying myself. When they're t- the first half of this movie, they're still hung- hanging on to this sort of ponderous tone that I think was left over from the first film in this particular run of Godzilla films, where it's all uh, it's all very kind of dour and everything's really kind of scary. Uh, despite the fact that it opens on a scene with King Kong in a holodeck. Uh, <laughs> King, yeah, King Kong like wakes up and like washes himself mm-hmm. in like a waterfall, mm-hmm. and then he like t- picks up a giant tree, sharpens it into a fucking javelin, and then throws it into the sky. Mm-hmm. And then like the hologram panels in the sky fall off, and you realize that this isn't Skull Island. He's like in a zoo. He's he's in a zoo, which like has Skull Island projected on the walls around him, but it's also on Skull Island, which is feels like putting so, a hat and, on a hat. And but okay, they, and uh, and thanks to uh, Rebecca Hall, who plays a person, uh, <laughs> Rebecca Hall, one of the most talented actors on the planet. Got some t- talented, notable yeah. people in this. We got yeah. Damien Bachir, and yeah. we got uh, the um, oh, I forgot the name of the actor. He was in Hunt of the for the Wilder People. Um, 
Oh, uh, 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 Julian Dennison. Julian Dennison is very, in this. Very uh, Millie, Millie Bobby Brown is in yeah. this. Brian uh, Tyree Kyle, Henry. Uh, Kyle Chandler is back. And yeah. um, all of these people are fine. Yeah. But, Almost none of them have anything they, to do. They all play human character. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she explains that uh, Godzilla has a terrible hunger to kill monsters and has evidently killed a bunch of monsters in between movies. Yeah. So I guess all the other ones are just gone. Uh, uh, yeah, we saw like we saw like an army of giant monsters at the end of the last Godzilla movie. They all just fucked off and no one knows where. Yeah, and just, now it's gone now. now uh, and, to be fair, this is a conceit of the Japanese films. Hmm. There's monsters crawling around everywhere. We just don't see them all. Well, the, time. the implication is that when all the monsters aren't like you know making a mess in Japan or whatever, hmm. they're on Monster Island. Yeah, there's actually a whole island where they just sort of hang out. It's a little bit later in the series, but yeah. Yeah, but but by that point, that kind of I feel like that actually like retroactively establishes that like if they don't establish where these monsters were, they're probably on Monster mm. Island. That's just where they're mm. from. Where's Monster Island? Doesn't matter. It, the uh, ocean. <laughs> it's near Skull Island. Okay. Yeah. So like, but like, so all of those other monsters are gone, mm. and so like, but the idea is that uh, uh, Godzilla is the apex titan. That's what we call giant monsters. They don't call them kaiju in the American movies. We call them titans. I'm I'm fine with that. I don't care. Whatever. Uh, and uh, but the idea is that Kong couldn't participate in Godzilla King of the Monsters because he was in this enclosure. Mm. Which I'm like, eh, fine. Rebecca Hall was protecting y- King Kong. You know what? Fine. I'm uh, actually fine with that. And it does explain it. And um, but the thing is that if Godzilla knew that King Kong was out there, Kong is also an apex titan. How they would know that, I have no idea. Is it, is it like a birthmark? Is it like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie? Like, how do you know? Well, that, and that that's when I, I say, oh, this is sort of like eight-year-old thinking. Yeah. They're both apex predators, that, and that's what we know about them. Yeah. That's, that's the, their that's character the, that's, the, that's not what we know. And uh, yeah. there's a great power source in the middle of the Earth, and the only way to get there is uh, through Kong's, like, monster radar in his brain. Yeah. So they bring... Uh, it's like it's like in that movie Beer Fest. Mm. <laughs> That's right. They have to be super drunk to yeah. find the drinking competition. Yeah, they find a they find a secret drinking competition when they're super drunk, and then when they go back to try to win the drinking competition, they realize they don't remember where it is, and the only way to find out where it is is to get so drunk that they access their beer memory. <laughs> so, and that's so what Kong, it is. Kong has a beer memory. <laughs> yeah, the idea is that Kong has some sort of like genetic memory that will help oh. him find this ancient mystical power source at the at the center of the planet. Because by the way, this is also journey to the center of the Earth, and it's a Hollow mm. Earth story. And so they dig into the center of the Earth in Antarctica, and there's a whole giant plateau. Where is well, the sun? I don't understand a- why there's a sun in here. <laughs> That's weird, man. Yeah, there's uh, there's like wormholes that lead to the center, so they don't spend like a year traveling into the middle yeah. of the earth. They just sort of zip through there on these yeah. little little spaceships. You remember when they just used tanks in the first Godzilla movie? Ah, those are the days. Uh, now they have like little flying space eggs that kind of fly through yeah. the air, and um, they use a, a, a super super powerful power source. Just these little uh, uh, spaceships, which can be used as defibrillator paddles. We'll learn later on. <laughs> uh, there's a scene later in the movie where Kong gets knocked over and they like park the ship on his chest and shock him back to life with the spaceship. <laughs> See what I mean? When it's fun, when it's stupid. 
Uh, yeah, uh, Kong goes down into Atlantis and finds a space mm. axe. Oh, but we skipped over the fact that while he was being transported, there was uh, they leapt across. He leapt across the top of a fleet of navy ships uh-huh. while well, he fought Godzilla, fight Godzilla in the of the ocean. who was sta- standing somehow in the middle of the ocean. You know how it is. Uh, so the idea is that Godzilla has been attacking, and no one knows why. Everyone's like, "Oh, I thought Godzilla was cool. Now I thought we were cool with Godzilla." No, he's attacking? Shit. So Damien Bashir is the head of a mysterious tech organization who could in no way turn out to be evil. Mm. And uh, he wants to find this mysterious power source at the center of the Earth in order to make a weapon that could destroy Godzilla. What kind of weapon? We won't talk about that. Mm. Is this a good idea? We're not going to talk about that. Will everyone just blindly go along with this plan without asking any serious questions about it, Mm. even though it will risk everyone's lives? Yes. Um, so they have to take Kong to Antarctica and then it all ends up with a big giant fight between Godzilla and Kong and I don't want to reveal what few reveals there are after that but like it's basically they're not not, it's not like this movie's so stupid it's like not like there's spoilers but uh, we've already we've already talked about a lot of plot points we'll we'll save it none none of the other stuff I feel is like worth you know it's something we really must be discussed what must be discussed in this movie is this the bar for this movie was really low. We just wanted to see Godzilla fight Kong, man. And I got to tell you something. It did not work for me. Not, even, a, not uh, even on a root eight-year-old level did this work for me. Well, I was actually I really just not feeling this film. This is a, a, a rather sad case of a film that had way too much money. Yeah. Uh, th- this is something that needs to be scrappy. Mm-hmm. It needs to get by on its stupidity. It can't use stupidity as sort of like this background flavor in this mm-hmm. otherwise really slick a Hollywood production that they're mm-hmm. spending hundreds of millions of dollars on. No, it, it, it just go with the stupid. Yeah. The, the charm of those old, old Godzilla movies is that they are cheap and that they do have this wonderful mm-hmm. eight year old child logic to them about um, the way the monster universe kind of works. At least after the first couple where like the first, yeah. the first couple were actually, they really took it seriously. They were and really it was kind a, of, yeah. Kind of a potent metaphor. Dramas, uh, but like by the time it segued into mostly being about monster fights, it's mm. just monster fight shit. It's not mm-hmm. a complicated movie. The original King Kong versus Godzilla, which came out in 63? 64. Uh, that movie is aggressively simple. Here's the plot of King Kong versus Godzilla. Uh, on Skull Island, they have super berries. That's right. It's booze. <laughs> these berries are like these ultra, like super good for you uh, uh, drugs. And that's why King Kong is so big. Because he eats these berries. And people want to get these berries. But in order to get the berries, they have to get past Kong. And uh, Kong is like, I'm King Kong. And they're like, oh shit, so he is. And so uh, they decide to take Kong with them after Kong fights a a, a big octopus. Yeah. And unfortunately, Godzilla, who at that point in the franchise was still the villain most of the time. Uh, Godzilla is running rampant, killing everything. And they're like, oh, well, we've got this King Kong now. Maybe he should fight him. And then they do. And the fight doesn't even end good. They just fight until there's an earthquake and then everyone decides to fuck off to where they were from. That's the whole movie. It's like 90 minutes long. And it gets... Well, a second it, too long. Yeah, and, and, and it's weird. There's this whole weird sequence where they go to Skull Island. And the inhabitants of Skull Island, the human inhabitants of Skull Island, 
rarely portrayed with anything resembling dignity, often mm. portrayed with a lot of racial insensitivity. That's very true on King Kong versus Godzilla. But then there's this weird bit where they're like, okay, in order to get everyone on a good side, we've got cigarettes for everybody. You get a cigarette and you get a cigarette. And there's like a six-year-old that's like, I want a cigarette. And they're like, oh, okay, well, don't tell your mom. And he gives the kid two cigarettes. And then the mom slaps the, kid, the cigarettes out of the kid's hand and takes one for herself and leaves the other one for the kid. And I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> This is pretty bad, even even by this standard. Like, holy Com- shit. Comedy. Um, but here's the thing. The actual fight between King Kong versus Godzilla in the original. And to be clear, this is not stop motion King Kong. This is King Kong in a suit. And frankly, the suit doesn't look very good. Oh, I, 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 it doesn't. I like the way it looks. That's but, fine, but it, it doesn't look very good. It's, it's the, it's easily the, the worst looking well, the, King Kong I've ever seen in a movie. The, uh, the, the old Godzilla suit wasn't a like a highly articulated thing. Like no. the jaw moved a little bit. They had like different parts of the suit depending on what they needed to film. Like there was no. a bottom half that they could use. The difference is that and, uh, King Kong didn't have to like have mm. like kind of human facial, you know, expressions. Yeah. Whereas King Kong kind of does, and so mm. there's really flat unmoving mask just makes it look extra goofy yeah, it doesn't the, really work there's a really bizarre scene where uh king kong grabs some uh power lines as we all know power lines are the the bane of godzilla's existence mm-hmm. like oh fuck power lines ah, fuck, fuck like, you. imagine 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 if like everywhere you, walk, you, you went walk there was a, a cobweb yeah you walk through a yeah. spider web that's yeah. what it's like for yeah. godzilla and it gave you and it, it hit mm-hmm. your funny bone every time somehow You're like how does it keep doing this Godzilla grabs, or uh, King Kong grabs some of these power lines and flosses with them briefly and yeah. gets himself all charged up. Yeah, he gets stronger. Mm. That's what King Kong does in that the, movie. That was left over from an earlier draft of the screenplay where it wasn't King Kong, but a gigantic Frankenstein monster. Yep, and then they ended up using bits of that for, was it Frankenstein Conquers the World? No, it was uh, War of the Gargantua. Oh yeah, it's Frankenstein Conquers the World and, and also War of the Gargantua. Yeah. Which um, is two gigantic Frankensteins. I will say this for the original monster fight between King Kong and Godzilla mm. in the 1960s movie. Um, there's actually some fun stuff in it. Like um, Godzilla wants to use his atomic breath, so God, so uh, King Kong grabs a tree and like shoves, shoves the whole down tree throat, down yeah. Godzilla's <laughs> mouth. There's some fun choreography in that, and that's something I was shocked to discover that in this giant movie where like CGI makes literally anything possible. The choreography stinks. Like, it's like Godzilla trying to drown it's, King Kong, and then they're just punching each other, and then they're yes. punching some more, and then Godzilla has an axe, and then that's it, really. Mm. I'm like, do something clever and fun. Go really... Have King Kong climb the world's tallest building, and then, like, mm. do, like, a dive bomb elbow on Godzilla well, or something, you some, know? Something I appreciated. There's a big uh, city-bound drag-out fight at the end where they're just sort of wailing on each other, and... Um, uh, yeah, Godzilla has a magical monster axe, and no, King Kong. Does. Or, excuse me, King Kong has a magical monster axe. Godzilla has magical monster breath, and uh, King Kong, famously known for climbing buildings, tries to climb a building, but he's so big now uh-huh. that he just knocks the building over. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's a cute bit where uh, Kong's shoulder gets dislocated, and Kong has to like slam his body up against a building to snap his shoulder back in place. That but part it, made me giggle a little bit. It's kind of funny, but it's only kind of funny just because they're big monsters. Like, mm. I really wanted to see more crazy stuff. And, mm. yeah, here... Like, they gave King Kong this big battle axe that could absorb atomic energy. Mm. And a lot of real estate in the movie is spent helping Kong find this thing. Never mind the fact that it raises a million questions. What is this thing? Why Why was it there? Why yeah. does it fit in that thing? Yeah, yeah. why Why is there, like, were, was Kong, were Kong's ancestors, like, 
scientists because they built like this weird cave with a whole bunch of like buttons in it and shit and like it's all the only reason that's there and the only reason all of that confusing shit is there is because at some point they realize that wait godzilla has atomic breath king kong doesn't that puts king kong at a massive disadvantage how are we gonna how are we gonna give king kong an advantage here and they gave him a magic axe and i'm like punch him in the larynx that's it. Godzilla's, Godzilla gets off one shot, like hits King Kong in the elbow, and Godzilla's like, hey! And then he tries to charge up again, and God's, and King Kong rushes him, punches him in the neck, mm. and then Godzilla like coughs up a couple of like puffs of, of atomic breath, mm. and now that's out of commission for a while. Boom! I just saved you half an hour out of your movie with this <laughs> stupid act. Yeah, it's, this, this it's a lot of, it's a lot of real estate it's a lot coming of, up to this yeah. thing. Um, th- this... I, I again. I wish this had been uh, smaller, shorter, scrappier, this lo- needs to lower be 90 budget. Minutes. Yeah, this is a ninety-minute movie. Cut, that cut is a lot of this stuff out. All of the human characters. Or, or you, uh, yeah. here, here's how you, how you save a lot of money if you need right. that axe. You yeah. have uh, um, King Kong like punch a hole in the ground. Uh-huh. So and you just have somebody say, "Oh no, he's going to the center of the earth." And then there's like, and he goes down <laughs> there, and you hear like, you're like, like roars and like fires comes out, and they like, if like you see like a, a monster head fly up out of the hole, and then King Kong climbs up after. Ah, ah, he's, King Kong has his magic axe. Good, now he can fight Godzilla. He's got a bandolier now for some reason, and a bandana over his head. And <laughs> just he went back to his Smoke, like, smoking camp. a cigar. <laughs> Here's but here's here's the thing that really pissed me off with this movie. A, a I thought the fights were actually not very imaginative. Right. I thought that kind of stank. And um, but the thing with this movie, I don't mind in a giant monster fight movie if the human characters aren't great. Mm. We don't expect them to be. It'd be nice if they were, but we don't expect them to be. No, we're if we're not here to see them. They're here to give us a little exposition, establish some context. Give us some human stakes so that we're not completely divorced from reality mm. and hopefully be interesting enough that we will care if they're put in peril. That's it. That's mm. really all we need. There's so many fucking human characters in this movie and so many of them have literally nothing to do. Mm. Millie Bobby Brown, one of the co-stars of the last movie. I liked her in the last movie. She teams up with Julian Dennison from Deadpool and Hunt for the Wilder People and uh, Brian Tyree Henry. They have an entire film long subplot in which Millie Bobby Brown it turns out is obsessed with shady conspiracy theory QAnon podcasts and believes all of them and she's right uh, Julian Dennison he, he comes along for the ride because he's comic relief he's, Brian Tyree Henry is also comic relief he's there because so they had to film part of the film in New Zealand and they yeah. needed a New Zealand star in order to get the tax break that's probably true uh, no, that's, that's that's literally that's it. literally why, uh, why why they cast. I'm not surprised. Uh, and then Brian Tyree Henry is like the kooky podcast guy who believes all these QAnon things, and of he's course the they're com- all real because that's the market we're going yeah, for. He's the, com- the he's the comic relief character. The, the, those characters are straight out of the Roland Emmerich film, and they don't have anything to do. When you're watching the movie, you realize that every single thing that they say or every single thing that is told to them is either unimportant or could have been said to any other character by almost any other character. Mm. So they're a complete waste of time. The only thing that they actually accomplish over the course of this film is they spill some fluid. <laughs> that's right. They, they just they just like, oh, there's some fluid in this thing. Spill. Whoops. Like, that's it. Like, that's all they managed to accomplish over the entire movie. 
Kyle Chandler manages to do even less. He's just there for some reason. And then there's Alexander Skarsgård, whose whole character is a mess. Oh, who cares? Really? I care yeah, because like, it, I'm a film critic and I need to yeah, explain why this doesn't work. Right. He's introduced, he's a he's a scientist who believes in hollow earth theory and Damien Bashir plays the billionaire industrialist who wants to fund his research to go to the center of the earth with King Kong to find this power source to power a weapon. Then he goes to see Rebecca Hall and says, hey, I need your King Kong. And that conversation lasts about 30 seconds before mm-hmm. she's like, fine, even though there's a million questions to answer there. And also, he got a haircut in between, so I guess time wasn't a factor. Um, and uh, that he doesn't need to be in the movie. Hmm. Like, he doesn't need to be in the movie. Like, seriously, all of that shit, everything he says about Hollow Earth, Damien Bashir could have said that. He's a billionaire who believes in shit. You're fine. <laughs> we don't need him. Here are the characters you need to tell this movie. All of them. Damien Bashir. Hmm. Rebecca Hall. The girl who plays Rebecca Hall's daughter, who I forget, who actually has, like, a friendship with Kong. That's it. <laughs> like that's it. There's even yeah, like a character who plays. There's a there's a woman who plays Damien Bashir's daughter. I don't know what she's in the movie for. Yeah, she she works for some sort of spy agency and she's like, up to something shady she, on she, behalf of Damien Bashir. And but they don't really talk about uh, what yeah. she has nothing to accomplish. She has no relationships with any other characters. Mm. She's not there for any reason. There's no okay, reason for people to be in this movie. This kind of like lightweight idiocy that I've I've you know. This, this is something I've seen a lot on, like, cable TV. I've watched a lot of bad monster movies and a lot of bad horror movies and a lot of bad j- genre films in my day. And typically it's worked because uh, it's a, typically being made by filmmakers who are trying to throw a lot of, like, high-minded concepts into a movie that doesn't have a lot to work with visually. Yeah. And we don't have, we don't have a lot of money, so uh, it so it had better be written pretty good, or at so least have some fun ideas in it. Those fun ideas are necessary to cover for the fact that you don't have a lot of story. Mm-hmm. And when you do, when you actually don't, and you kind of see through that, you can be charmed by the effort. Sometimes it worked quite well. Often it doesn't, mm-hmm. but you can like those movies, even though they they can be quite bad. Sure. Uh, I feel like that approach isn't going to work when you do have that money. Yeah. When you do have that money, you actually have the onus is on you to actually do something with it. And unfortunately a movie where King Kong and Godzilla fight each other doesn't have a lot of big ideas to deal with. Um, Now there is something that can be done with these characters. Uh, King Kong and Godzilla actually represent some very important, heavy political things. They do. Uh, Godzilla is, is, has been said ad infinitum is a metaphor for the atomic bomb. Uh, yeah. Ameri- Shinya, America's destructive yeah. and reckless uh, military and, might. And it, and Godzilla continued to serve as that metaphor uh, until maybe Shin Godzilla, where I think they kind of changed it into more maybe, a natural disaster. Yeah, like, like the Fukushima disaster a little yeah. bit more. Well, and, natural uh, disaster, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. like a, rather a, a singular disaster that the bureaucracy was ill-prepared to handle. Yeah. That movie's all about how the bureaucracy doesn't quite work. And they're actually... The human characters in Shin Godzilla, there are some individuals, but the humans all as a mass are like the co-star. Yeah. Because there's like rooms full of people who are like meetings. There's like a room full of a hundred scientists. They're a character and they're just shouting things at each other. We don't need singular characters. That works fine in Shin Godzilla. King Kong, meanwhile, is... uh, And this isn't talked about a lot because the King Kong fans... um, don't tend to talk of King Kong in these terms, but King Kong is a slavery metaphor. Yeah. Uh, 
very openly a slavery metaphor. And uh, there's a whole scene yeah. dedicated to it in Inglorious Bastards. And mm. you can make the argument very easily that the makers of the original King Kong weren't trying to have any particular commentary about that. And I think that's fair, but they are using the tropes. They are using the trappings. They are evoking the imagery very Mm. intentionally. They just might not have been as damning in their critique of it. They were probably just exploiting it without really thinking, but that's, that's always been ingrained in the character. It's always been part of it. And And even, even even, sorry, even Kong Skull Island, mm. it's not the same thing, but if you're going to turn into a Vietnam metaphor, then it becomes, Mm. he Kong becomes, a victim of America's manifest destiny, yeah, yeah which yeah. is related or, or to just, the military might of, Go- of Godzilla. Hmm. So, so these are both very military-oriented uh, creatures. Yeah, they both have a lot of baggage, and there's a story that can be told there. Yeah, about what they represent and you know h- how the fight comes to be and who's behind them. Yeah, uh, no, this this film goes a little bit more for the more fun 60s Godzilla movies where it's just monster versus monster. And some yeah. of those are, are quite good. Some of them are very, very bad. <laughs> uh, any, anyone with uh, with Godzilla's child just stay, oh, stay, min, min, yeah. Uh, stay, Minila, stay away from min, mini Zilla Minila. That's that's the, the play on Minila is the worst. Yeah. It's easily the worst thing that ever happened to Godzilla. And, and if you re- think the Roland Emmerich movie is bad, wait, is, yeah. is it Son of Godzilla that Manila S- appears? Son of Godzilla and also um, All Monsters Attack. Oh, uh, I don't which know. All Monsters Attack, which Isn't is that where clip show? there's a lot of reused footage, and uh, it's a dream sequence where a little boy. Oh. Uh, like Minila has shrunk down to the size of a boy. That's what I and, remember. Uh, right. Yeah, that's the one I saw. That one's shit. And and Minila can now uh, speak to the little boy, and they just talk oh, about the, yeah. That's a stupid, goofy voice too. Yeah. The, the movie's like sixty-one oh. minutes, and it feels like it's days. It is awful. Oh my god. That's yeah. No matter so how bad. bad these American Godzilla films get, it'll never be that bad. You yeah. you knock some wood when you say that. I'm do you sorry. want the, Do you want them to, to like? To meet that challenge? Do you want them to be that bad? You knock some wood for God's sake. Well, say. sorry. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, when they make a fifth one of these goddamn American Godzilla movies. Here's the then thing. They'll, uh, yeah. they'll, they'll get to it. Anyway. So uh, there there maybe is a story that you could tell. Yeah. That would have with Godzilla been and, about and King something. Kong fighting each other. Where there's actually yeah, yeah. It's about. This is not about anything. And I think rather proudly it's not about anything yeah I'm not to be proud of but the director is Adam Wingard you know he loves genre films he's done things like You're Next and The Guest uh, he did and that really bad Blair Witch sequel I, as well I don't dislike that movie I think that movie's I, fine I do dislike that movie um, yeah and I think he he's seen a lot of the old, uh, 60s Godzilla movies he's very fond of those movies and is trying to capture just the uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term the, the glorified idiocy of mm-hmm. those old, a lot of these old monster films, well, it like and I think it's it's kind of successful when it gets to the dumb stuff. Yeah, when it's all of a little bit more American, and they're trying to tell this sort of like headier melodrama, and all the, and the awful awful musical score is just like blasting you out of your seat. Yeah, then uh, it just crumbles. It's just not not good. Yeah, but it's enjoyable in this weird weird stupid kind of way. I uh, uh, I have two things I'll say. Uh, one, I think more so than the earlier Godzilla movies, and he's even talked about this a little bit, I feel like what Adam Wingard was trying to do with this movie was turn it into an amusement park ride. Uh, 
Yeah. And there are actual oh, extended the, the, bits. The flying sequences every time look like a theme park. Right every right. time they're in this little flying UFO thing where mm-hmm. they're going through the hollow earth or when they're like flying in between Godzilla and King Kong while they're fighting, I'm like, yeah, that's trying to bump Biff Tannen's DeLorean <laughs> like, the in the Back to the Future, the future ride. ride. Like It's that kind Which, of like... Sadly, you know, that ride's Star- gone now. I know, yeah. but it's, it's basically Star Tours. It's that kind of vibe. Um... That's not the end of the world, but I do think that that's a pretty kind of shallow way to treat a giant feature film, and I don't think it serves the movie well over time. Yeah, there's um there's a sequence uh a sequence there's a, a a feature on the Universal Backlot tour. Um, yeah. Back in 1986, they opened up uh, the King Kong. And yeah. It was, and it was, was a gigantic animatronic, that and it would cool. it shook a bridge, and your, your yeah. tram ro- rolled back and forth. It was really really big. It was really effect. cool. Uh, it was a big deal when they first built it. It was this engineering marvel, and uh, you can see it uh, see it behind the scenes in the, the feature film The Wizard, um, where they, they go to uh, Universal Studios. Then they uh, rebranded it when Peter Jackson's King Kong movie came out. Yeah. And now it's uh, they put screens on either side, and you put on 3D glasses. Okay. And, it, and this, the tram still shakes, and it looks like things are kind of ma- moving around you, but it's just a movie now. Just with oh. screens on either side of the, the cab. Oh, that's not as fun. Yeah, it's, no. it, it's not as fun. Plus, I mean, I don't like Peter Jackson's King Kong movie well, either. My, my last thought on this, and we'll move on, is uh, I've heard a lot of people talking about, like, I, I mentioned some of my critiques on Twitter, and some people were like, hey, it's just a big, giant monster movie. And I'm like, yes, that doesn't necessarily make it a good one. Just yeah, because there's, a mo- there's a good one of these and there's a bad one of these. Just because a movie has low ambition doesn't necessarily mean that they achieve those ambitions. Mm-hmm. You can make a bad, stupid movie just because we're not trying to be like top-notch, meaningful cinema. That's not an excuse to suck. Mm-hmm. Like at some point, you do actually still have to do the work. And I know some people are fine with this movie, and it's really I am not offended by it. Like I'm not mad at it. I just think if I were teaching a screenwriting class, this would be a script that would teach people on how not to write a movie. Mm. Like, this is really a shoddily put together production. I don't, and again, it's all here to bolster a couple of monster fights. I don't think the monster fights are particularly interesting. And there's way too much padding around them to successfully bolster those fights. Mm. There's more not fighting than there is fighting. And... I don't care about any of the other shit that happens in it. <laughs> so, yeah, this does not work for me. Right. I don't think this is a good one. This is easily the least of the MonsterVerse movies for me. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're all great, yeah, but like, like it's still this is definitely the one that for me where I'm just sort of like, I feel like I just wasted my time. Oh, I really I'm didn't sorry. need to see this movie at all. Like well, I, uh, it, it just kind of bummed me out. I, uh, I I feel about this one the same way I feel about Kong. It's fine. It's fine. We, uh, there, there's fun monster stuff. You in mean it. Skull Island? Skull Island. Okay. Oh, I said Monster Island. Didn't you said Kong, but that could be that could be any. Kong, Kong. Sorry, yeah. Kong colon Skull Island. Yeah, okay. Um, so just to which, which is you know, again, no cinema classic, but at least had some fun stuff in it. Solid yeah. three star blockbuster. Yeah, and and I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've some clever like, stuff, some stupid stuff, yeah. mostly works. I, I think there's nothing clever in this one. I think it sort of doubles down on the stupid, but I enjoyed a lot of that stupid when mm. they started getting into spaceships as defibrillator paddles. I'm like, okay. I, I, I can take another shot another shot of gin and uh, enjoy the rest of this. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, let's move on. Now, you saw a couple of movies that weren't giant monster fight movies, unless I am sorely mistaken. No, in fact, these are quite the opposite. All right. So tell me about, we got two more new releases. You mm. saw them. I didn't. 
Uh, tell me about About Endlessness. Um, about Endlessness is the latest film from Swedish director Roy Anderson. Uh, Roy Anderson uh, also did A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. Mm-hmm. And the Thunderbirds, and, uh, uh, Thunderbirds show. Uh, that was Jerry Anderson. Um, okay. The Thunderbirds movie was directed by Jonathan Frakes, so I don't, you're, you're messing okay. everything up. Well, a pigeon sat on a frakes. Depend. Just stop. Exist. Just stop. Look, I didn't see the movie. I had to say something. Um, I'll let you talk. Roy Anderson is, um, you might call him an absurdist comedian. He has this weird kind of uh, Monty Python on depressive drugs kind of kind of vibe to his movies. Uh, he His filmmaking is very static. He locks the camera down. The camera doesn't move in his, his uh, films too much. And he stages these little tiny vignettes where everything is uh, staged like a little diorama and everybody's very gray. And there's some, typically like some event of extreme misery or panic, but it's presented in such a flat, dry way. It's reads a little bit as comedy. Mm. Uh and about endlessness is a series of seemingly unconnected vignettes about uh, just sort of observing little foibles of human existence and also sort of dreams. Like there's a few dreamlike images. There's a, a, a scene of a couple who are embracing, uh, floating in midair, hundreds of feet above the ground, while just sort of drifting through the clouds through the city. And we hear the narrator say, "I saw a couple, and they were floating above the city, reflecting uh, on existence." Uh, there's a, a the film opens with a fellow coming out of a, a subway and he addresses the camera directly saying I I, I saw a friend of mine and I was, didn't even remember him and we actually had a really bad past and he's kind of a dick to me on the train and I wonder what I'm gonna say to that guy next and then he comes up behind him and he walks by hey come back oh fuck you oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> then that's the end of that vignette. Uh, then we see a fellow having a dream where he is Christ being whipped while carrying the cross to the site of his uh, his crucifixion. And everybody's yelling at him, but they're all wearing modern clothes and they're going through the streets of Sweden. Okay. And then he wakes up and says, wow, I just dreamt that I was about to be crucified. And that's the joke. Um, Bit of a thinker. Mm. It all is getting at, I think... Roy Anderson trying to unlock the meaning of life. <laughs> oh. it, and his argument is, li- it's like that lyric in, in um, uh, Don't Let Start by They Might Be Giants. No one in the world ever gets what they want, and that is beautiful. Everybody dies frustrated and sad, and that is beautiful. Uh, he is saying that there is n- nothing but being stymied and inability to communicate uh, a haunting dreamlike quality to life, little tiny moments of bliss and joy, and you'll end on everything on a completely frustrated and unfulfilled. And that's kind of where we're at. Mm-hmm. Just the, the swirling so they, miasma of little bits of pleasure and a lot of frustration. So they want what they're not, and I wish they would stop singing Deputy Dog Dog, Ding Dang, Deputy Dog Dog, Ding Dang, Deputy Dog Dog. Dippity, World Destruction, oh, mm. for an overture. Yes, I know the song. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I, when, how often do I get to use that lyric? All right, it's true. Let me have this. Okay, I, I sang that karaoke once. It's, it's not a very satisfying, satisfying karaoke song because it's like a minute and 45 seconds. You're also, not everyone in the audience knows it. And then well, it doesn't matter. I don't care well. about that. But um, 
But yeah, uh, everything in Roy Anderson's films are really frustrating and really uh, weirdly hilarious, but not in a laugh out loud kind of way. You're just sort of like, even if you're not a depressive Swede, you'll kind of understand, you'll kind of get at what Roy Anderson is trying to hint at in a film like About Endlessness. Uh, this is only the second film of his I've seen. Uh, the other one is A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence. And the pigeon doesn't play a very big role in that movie. It's mostly just the same sort of thing. People having these little tiny vignettes, these little tiny moments. Uh, it's not quite as absurd as A Pigeon Sat on a Branch, uh, which has some like clear fantasy sequences. Mm. Like there, There's a wonderful scene uh, in A Pigeon where two uh, joke salesmen like they sell novelties and toys out of a suitcase and the joke is they don't smile like here's some funny teeth you should wear those they're funny here's a whoopee cushion makes a fart noise and while they they're giving their shtick uh in a diner where people are just sort of sitting far apart from each other we see in the background this enormously ambitious royal retinue of hundreds of extras passing by the window (laughs) It's like, oh, who's that? Oh, it's the old royalty. And this guy, like, from the 18th century steps in and says, yes, I need food immediately. Uh, It's all very bizarre. Uh, This shit's my jam. I I love these weird, surrealist, absurdist uh, comedy vignettes that Roy Anderson is throwing at me without any rhyme or reason because he's inviting me to unlock something, but at the same time, I think he's trying to confuse a cat limited me into <laughs> into thinking or doing something that I, I that I, I don't know I'm doing or thinking. Mm. Uh, yeah, it, feel, it feels a little bit like a trick. It feels like a really long, slow-moving, protracted joke mm. that you probably might not get because everything is also a little bit dour and gray and drab. And I walked away completely satisfied. It's so, it's so much better than Godzilla v. Kong, I'll tell you that. At what point uh, uh, do, do they have like a giant axe? That they like swing um, at each other and use to absorb atomic breath energy. There's no giant axe in about endlessness. I was trying to think if there was an axe at all, but there's no there's no weapons. I, okay, so there's a what's it called? There's a Twitter account that's like, is there a cat in this movie? Oh, and it's just a list of film titles, whether or not there's a cat. Well, if there is a cat, they show a picture of the cat. Okay. If there is a if there isn't a cat, they just say like you know Amadeus. No, there's no like, cat. Or Amadeus. I, I don't know if that's true in Amadeus. I don't recall. But like whatever the movie is, mm-hmm. if there's no cat, they'll say no cat. And sometimes it's like a cat's a main character, mm-hmm. like Pussy in Boots. But then other times it be like Cats in America Winter Soldier. And if you look carefully into that one alleyway, there is there's a cat. A cat runs by yeah. the camera. Boom, done. Yes, there is a cat. a cat in that movie. There should be like, is there a giant axe in this movie? <laughs> like that's it. Yeah, it's like I'm... this and that one Paul Bunyan movie, Tall Tale. Tw- like... Twitter is a great way to waste time, isn't it? Yes, it sure is. There's a Twitter account called "Is it Ted Danson's birthday?" I retweet that account often, <laughs> and every time, every time I do, I just go, "Damn it!" I'm following an account that is just tweeting through uh, day by day the entirety of Finnegan's Wake. There you go. And Finnegan's Wake is cyclical, so they can just start over. It just runs forever. <laughs> uh, I have an idea for one of those accounts, but I actually would want to do it, so I don't want to tell anybody. Oh, but okay. it's good, and I haven't seen anyone do it yet. Mm-hmm. So one of these days, if I have a lot of spare time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't finish that oh, sentence. Okay. Let's move on. Right. So the other movie that you saw this week mm-hmm. was, um, this is not a burial. It's a resurrection. It's a resurrection. It's a resurrection. This is not a burial. It's a resurrection. It's a film. Uh, it's the first film I've seen from the country of Lesotho, 
which is a landlocked nation uh, completely surrounded by South Africa. Mm. And this is an incredibly ambitious movie in terms of its its thought and philosophy. It takes place in a, a plain of Lesotho that uh, the colonialists long ago named, uh, I think they call it Nazareta. They, call, they named it after Nazareth mm. because they're these Christian settlers. The colonials are gone, and the locals have referred to uh, this plain as I think they call it like the the plain the the plains of tears or like the the, the plains of pity. Like there's a great sadness that that hangs over this place, and that sadness that that uh, horrible lamentation has now bled into everything, and but not in a way that makes you think it's like a, a depressive place, like a sad place that needs to be cured or cheered up. This is actually a film that argues that lamentation and the death of like all of your ancestors is something that's very salient and important. Uh, the main character is a woman in her 80s who has buried her children and her grandchildren. She has seen all of her family die. And even though she doesn't really say it out loud, she's essentially lost her faith. Just, you know, th mm. this is a, a, a very Christ Christianity still sort of lingers. They talk about how the church has been there since the 1850s, but she realizes that her roots in this place go back much, much further. And thinking back of all of the people who have died around her, it sort of marked her. She's grown very bitter to, uh, to the ideas of gods or deities, but, she has formed this new connection with, uh, with the earth again, essentially with this place and how she wants to leave her mark. She wants to be buried here. She wants to join this, uh, centuries long tradition of living in this place now that she's very, very old and is preparing for death. And wouldn't you know it, uh, some, uh, industrialists have come by and they say that they're going to uh, build a dam nearby and flood this entire place and you have to be uh, mm. evacuated. And she doesn't, like she does stand up to these people and they're sneaking in and chopping down trees. We see these guys in the creepy yellow suits coming in and ripping out some of the, the plant life. But it's not about like the action that she takes. It's not about her standing up. It's not a, like a political film like you know, a, something Gus Van Sant might make in the United States. This is about how she has come to realize how important it is to be in this place. And this really bizarre, uh, nightmarish score hangs over it. There's a lot of long, sustained shots. The... Uh, actual taking in of the character of the countryside mm. is really, really important. I feel like we don't see that a lot in movies anymore. I feel we got it's a little bit of that. Though, like it's almost Nomadland, as though but yeah. it's, it's a character in the film. <laughs> it, it's almost as though somebody's paying attention to the natural world, ah, okay. which is, you know, increasingly difficult to see as films get more generally speaking, very generally speaking, a little bit more artificial. Uh, there's no key for an American audience, which I also appreciate. Mm. There's not a stand-in. There's not an explanation. Mm -hmm. There's not uh, a modern American parallel for us mm. to sort of get our fingernails into. We just get to see her, and we get to see her life, and we get to see her, her 
her faith journey, as it were, I guess her lack of faith journey. She's you know become an atheist, and the only thing that's real for her now mm-hmm. is the fact that she wants to be buried here. And and it's really, really, it's really intense. It's really beautiful. It's incredibly slow moving. It's a two hour movie and not a lot happens here. And there are a lot of shots of her just sort of sitting in bed and then she wanders outside and she talks to some people. It's if if you're looking for like action or big climactic moments, you might get one or two. Yeah. More than anything, it is a contemplation. That's hard to pull off in film. Yeah. That's hard. It's hard to give ideas without giving us any like actual dialogue or discussion. And I feel like that's, that's something this movie does. Um, the main character uh, is played by an actress named Mary Twala uh, and she's fantastic. She just, you can see every bit of pain on her face and she, she does a lot. She's actually very active. Yeah. And the director is, I, I, I apologize for my pronunciation. Lemohang Jeremiah Mosese. Uh, and I think this is only their second film. Okay. Um, but uh, just the director really knows how to uh, put a lot of character into this place and give the, uh, the lean character a lot of uh, a lot of personality. And she is, of course, just wonderful. This was submitted to the Academy Awards for uh, Best uh, International Film, but it wasn't nominated. But I was interested because I I hadn't seen any films from Lesotho before, and it's important to me to see films from as many different countries as I can and even uh, should probably make a checklist at some point, just every country currently on the planet earth and where I've seen uh, films from. Uh, and it's great. Oh. It's just great. It's, it. it's, it's great, intense, heady, challenging, but ultimately very rewarding cinema about uh, the, the positive effects of sadness and lamentation. Well, that sounds sad and lamentative. It's good. It's but also very positive. good. That sounds really uh, you good. You can currently yeah. get it through the uh, Lemley Virtual Cinema. Okay. Yeah, where they're they're renting their newer films. All right, so that's it for our new release mm-hmm. uh, reviews for this week. Bit of a short week. I think uh, a mm-hmm. lot of movies just wanted to get out of the way of Godzilla Kong because mm-hmm. uh, it's been a while since we had a lot of blockbusters. So. Uh, but uh, let's review our movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Once again, if you're new or need a refresher, we review movies on a scale of C- to C+, where the lowest you can get is a C-. That's just anything that's below average, either just awful or just generally kind of bad. Uh, there's also a C. We can give a movie a C, which is average. You know, some good, some bad. It's okay. Mm-hmm. And then there's C+, which is above average, and that's everything from we genuinely recommend it to it's the best movie ever made. Uh, so Whitney. Mm-hmm. On that scale, how do you rate? This is not a burial; it's a resurrection. Uh, that's uh, that's a C plus. It's really great. Four star kind of film material. Wow, is uh, about endlessness a four star kind of film material? Um, I'll be thinking about it a lot. Okay, but it's also a C plus. Uh, that's a good. Mm. That's good to hear. Mm. And then uh, I'm curious because I know where I landed on it, but I'm not 100 yeah. sure. Where do you land ultimately on Godzilla versus Kong? Uh, it's it's C. I, I, it's a C. It like I said, it's it's not great cinema by any stretch. Uh-huh. It's actually really shoddily written, but it's it's when it gets to be stupid, it actually gets to be kind of fun, uh-huh. and uh, it was enough for me to to walk away entertained. Uh, it, when it got to be stupid, it wasn't enough for me. It had too much to compete with, mm-hmm. just too much banality, too much uh, uh, padding, and uh-huh. um, frankly. Yeah, I just didn't have a lot of fun with it. There's a couple of bits that are kind of neat, but 
yeah, this is a C minus for me. I just ended up not having a very good time and mm-hmm. just felt like my time would have been better served watching something else, <laughs> which is never a good critique mm-hmm. for anything. So, uh, yeah, big old big old goose egg for me on uh, Godzilla versus mm-hmm. Kong. For, for what it's worth, it's making money. You know, some people great are, you know, like it's like like it's making money in theaters like people are going to see this that, in theaters. that is good i'm glad mm-hmm. the theaters are, are getting safer now people are vaccinated we're starting to you know the world's starting to get back a little bit to normal that's good i'm glad to hear that uh and i guarantee you this film plays a little better in a theater than it does at home however 99.9 percent of the time when people see this movie they will be seeing it at home yeah, because it'll play in theaters for a little while and then it won't again anymore, mm. except for maybe in a special screening once in a while. So if it doesn't work at home, it kind of doesn't work. And on that note, I don't think it works. Mm. You know what does work? Born in Flames. <laughs> Born in Flames is great. Holy cow! Was this uh, a movie I can't believe I hadn't seen before? Yeah, th- this one was remastered kind of recently, and I didn't yeah. see it until it was remastered. So I didn't see this for the first time until a couple of years ago. Yeah, but... I saw it for the first time this week, yeah. and I was completely blown away. So uh, this is the winner of our streaming club poll for this week. Uh, once again, you go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, and even for just $1 a month, you get to vote in our various polls for uh, to help decide future shows. Uh, including the Iron List and every week on the Critical Claim Streaming Club. And uh, Whitney wanted to uh, focus on films that are available on a streaming service called Ovid, O-V-I-D, uh, which is dedicated to uh, really ambitious and very thoughtful art house movies. Mm-hmm. It's basically if the Criterion Collection had a Criterion Collection, <laughs> it would be Ovid. Oh. Um and uh, yeah, this is the one that won the poll. Uh, it is directed by Lizzie Borden. Not that one. She's, she, mm-hmm. she hasn't been around for a while. Lizzie Borden is a feminist filmmaker. Uh, and this is such a distinct motion picture. It was made in 1983. Shot like a documentary. It is a fictional film. Uh, and it is a feminist, Afrofuturist, dystopian science fiction film with... No science fiction elements to speak of, other than it takes place in a slightly parallel world. Yeah, there's like, like fictional president, for instance, mm-hmm. and a lot of the social issues have uh, kind of uh, bloomed into kind of extreme issues. Yes, yeah. the uh, the movie opens uh, with the declaration that uh, there has been a revolution in America, the most peaceful revolution in history. Uh, and that America is now a socialist democracy, or democratic socialism, mm. socialist, democratically it's socialist a, country. It's a socialist government. Yeah. It's a socialist government now. Uh, and theoretically, that means everything's cool, right? Actually, no, not if you're a woman or a person yeah, of color it, or if you don't turns, have money. It uh, turns out it's actually very suspiciously similar to the way it is now anyway. Yeah, the... the um the specter of racism and sexism still lurks over everything. So when it comes to uh, getting jobs for people, all of those old sexist and uh, systemic racist things that were part of the system before are still in there. Yeah. So, so like everyone uh, is everyone's entitled to a job, but uh, when they start laying off all the women and the people of color, yeah. uh, and they start having protests about it, the government responds, "Yeah, you're right. That isn't fair anymore. We're going to start making sure that uh, the husband of every woman." Who lost a job can get a job, and, and, and the, that's 
totally unironic. And, and the women say, that's unfair. And later in the film, they say, okay, well, we'll, we'll give you some government funds to be a housewife. Yeah. Yeah. And there's completely, completely mm. oblivious. They talk about how, uh, you know, the idea that this futuristic, even though it's not futuristic, it's takes place in like the eighties. Um, civilization has solved all problems is nothing more than a political smokescreen. And what you realize is that what they're describing and what they're describing it like long before a lot of people were comfortable acknowledging this, Mm -hmm. they're describing the idea that some people have or had uh, that uh, following the civil rights movement, we were living in a post-racial America in which race wasn't an issue anymore, in which feminism wasn't an issue anymore, and we're all cool now, right? And no one was actually actively engaging on a political level with the fact that there's still a ton of work that needs to be done in order to make this country as equal and as free as it needs to be, whether, you know, feminism, racism, uh, uh, queer uh, issues, class systems, there's they're all fucked. Uh, but because the government says they're fine, everyone's getting really complacent. And this is about two competing feminist movements. Uh, one, well, a, there's three, really. Well, but, yeah. three, I suppose. But like, it's about competing feminist movements who are trying to change the world. Uh, one which is uh, largely composed of black feminists, uh, one which is largely composed of white and queer feminists. Mm. And even though there's a lot of overlap in their ideologies, there's also, they're also unwilling to work together on a lot of things because mm. some well, of them are, have more invested in a status quo mm. than others. Yeah, the, and a lot of... What I appreciate about Born in Flames, apart from everything, yeah. uh, is uh, this is using a lot of language of uh, political discourse and revolutionary discourse that it's, it's sort of like trying out the vocabulary that we're using now to discuss a lot of political issues and the appropriate way to address uh, grave political uh, problems. Yeah. Like s- systemic social problems yeah. in, in the United States. And we're, they all have the same goal. And they're also having very serious discussions as to how to go about solving these problems. Yeah. They all want, the problems are there. The issue isn't whether or not we're going to argue what these problems are. We know what the problems are. Mm -hmm. How extreme do we get? Yeah. And what they realize is that over the course of the film is that the people who are most oppressed, Mm -hmm. uh, which is largely the the people of color, uh, are less interested in trying to find a way to work within the system because a lot of people are like, well, yes, but we don't want to break the system entirely because when we're in charge of it, we want to be able to function. And everyone's like, it doesn't work at all. Let's just break it. Yeah. And then we see a lot of people try to tamp that down. You, again, you, I was thinking about this. It's like a lot of the language that we use mm-hmm. today or is, is sadly being used today is being articulated very clearly in Born in Flames, albeit with different terminology, when they the 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 government in this movie tries to say that like, listen, everyone in this country is free. Everyone in this country should be treated equally. And if one group says that they're being treated less equally than others and they want to be treated they want to be the focus of attention, that just means that they're being selfish. And what that's basically just saying is the difference between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. 
Where it's like, we want to really want to focus on this one problem right now. And then there's a whole bunch of people who, rather than deal with... you have to be the special one? Yeah, like this bullshit where it's like, well, so you're saying is that, you know, this matters more. It's like, no, it should matter equally, but it doesn't. So it needs to be the focus of attention right now. And some people just can't get that through their goddamn minds. And it's... uh, This is another instance where it's like, we're watching this and it's like, this is so frustrating how... Absolutely, almost any conversation being had in this movie, the terminology might be slightly different, but almost any conversation had in this movie would be relevant having it today mm-hmm. or five years ago or 10 years ago. And it's all right here. It's all 1983. And it's, it's, it's to the point where if you watch this movie for the first time today, it's difficult to tell. It's difficult for me, someone who was like born in 1982, who was made in 1983. It is difficult for me to pinpoint what element of this movie exactly is supposed to be science fiction. <laughs> like, obviously, we didn't go through a big socialist revolution, but we there was a general sense that the civil rights movement had come to a crest, and well, amongst people who didn't well, get it. But like, regardless, beyond that, what elements of this narrative that they're talking about? didn't come to pass or isn't still relevant or didn't become relevant later. I can't think of anything. What what I think uh, Born in Flames is really uh, kind of attacking here is is actually white liberalism. Yeah. I mean, it, it is attacking a lot of the uh, old conservative tropes, but this idea that uh, we can have a socialist revolution and push the country really, really far to the left, and that would make everything sort of utopian and hunky-dory. Uh-huh. And yet somehow not tackle and yeah, issues n- of race and But not actually talk and, about yeah, yeah. Cl- class, race, and wealth issues in the United States that have existed since the inception of the country. It's just doomed to fail. And I think this is uh, a really wonderfully political film because it's attacking both sides, but it still has something on its mind. Mm-hmm. And it has a solution, or it has at least a way to open up a conversation about potential solutions up to these problems. Yeah. All while carrying with it this really enervating, incredibly energetic, incredibly stylized punk rock rebellion against the system. Yeah. Uh, this is a film that believes in subverting the dominant paradigm. Is the dominant paradigm, you know, old conservative modern day America? Yes. Is the modern paradigm actual socialism? Also, yes. Yeah. Uh, And we have uh, these two rival pirate radio stations. That's such an 80s idea. Uh, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, Sort of espousing the same idea, but also going to head to head. It's like, I'm trying to think of like LA radio stations that were like really on the fringe, but were kind of pirate radio as well. 100.3. 100.3. Well, there was one called Pirate Radio, but it Pir- wasn't an actual Pirate Radio station. No, but it definitely was, was pretty hard, edgy was hard, for the time. It was a hard rock station. Um, yeah. No, it was a metal station for a while. Yeah. Like in the 80s, it was proper metal. Yeah, it, um, it, was, it was the one I listened to. Same. Yeah, yeah there, there was one, Pirate Radio and there was KNAC, which was a little bit more pop. Uh, KNAC also played like KMFDM and shit. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it became pop later, but for a while, those were the competing heavy metal stations. Mm. I know because they were all my brother listened to. <laughs> I couldn't listen to anything in, else. In, in my circles, the cool kids listen to pirate radio. And if okay. you're, if you're mainstream, you listen to KNAC. Ah, uh, I think when I was thinking about like, I'm trying to think about like how this fits into, you know, sort of a sci-fi framework. And I think obviously it's a commentary, like a lot of sci-fi mm-hmm. about how the things that we discuss in science fiction are actually the issues that we're dealing with today. Um, and that's, 
totally on the nose here. But mm-hmm. I also think it's a, it's a smart commentary on how the science fiction that we have, uh, especially utopian science fiction, the idea that uh, like something like in Star Trek and how we're just going to deal with everything and we're going to like eventually solve all our problems. Uh, those types of science fiction stories rarely, if ever, grappled with the problems that would need to be solved in order to achieve that utopia. Mm-hmm. And by selectively ignoring serious issues and the people who are being oppressed and marginalized, uh, they're, what they're suggesting is that all of those utopias are a lie. Mm. All of those utopias, even in their absolute fantasy, they're almost exclusively white male fantasies. Yep. And they're leaving out women and people of color. We we recently um, talked about in our a Patreon podcast, All Our Yesterdays, we're reviewing every single Star Trek ever. Mm. The final episode of Star Trek, the original series. Oh, God. Ended up being, and Star Trek, the original series was progressive for its time in a lot of ways. It was also alarmingly regressive, especially in its sexual politics, mm. a lot of the time. The last episode clarified that for all of its utopian ideals, the Federation didn't allow women to be Starfleet captains. You couldn't, you couldn't captain a starship if you were a woman. That was canon for a while. They eventually retconned it, but that was canon yeah, for they, a while. They never explained why they said yeah. that in that one episode. The final, they said it because that was the that was mm. what they said. And Gene well, Roddenberry, like even Gene Roddenberry admitted it was a mistake, but they did do it. They have, and, haven't retconned it into canon, though. Yeah, and then uh, the last line of dialogue in Star Trek was, if and I'm paraphrasing, but... Uh, if only because the, the plot of the final episode was a woman who was driven mad by not being allowed to achieve her ambitions because she's a woman in a sexist society. And so she ends up taking over Kirk's body and trying to be a captain. But as a woman with woman feelings, according to the show, she was unfit to be captain. And so, of course, there was an insurrection against her and her entire plan failed. And then the last line of the series was Kirk saying, if only she would have been happy being a woman. If only. <laughs> Credits. Yeah, yeah. Fucking repugnant. But again, there was definitely a huge, huge, huge blinder to some serious social ills, even among socially conscious science fiction. So here we have the idea that all of that cool stuff you might have seen in another movie has already happened. And they talk about how there was a big revolution and how women were warriors mm-hmm. in order to help fight this revolution. But much like at the end of World War II, where women were suddenly uh, pushed into more actual like jobs like outside the home and they were actually kept the whole country running for a while. And then the men came back and the women were expected to just go back into the kitchen. Same vibe here. Mm. It's the exact same vibe where it's just basically like, okay, wait, we solved all the problems and now we still want to control all the women and we still want all, all people of color to be oppressed by this extremely conservative shitty state. And, um, and there was a huge, uh, oppression towards, uh, people of, all, all queer people as well and yeah all these people still need to have their insurrection all these people still need to have their revolution and we're seeing over the course how small moments of insurrection like vigilante like women on bicycles just riding through the streets of New York just keeping an eye out <laughs> seeing if any man tries to perform a sexual assault and if so they attack him Mm-hmm. And then we see on the news, like, have are these women going too far? And then we see, like, a whole campaign that's, like, sympathizing 
with men who commit acts of sexual assault, like, oh, they're so damaged. Mm. Oh, we need to help them. But they're not it's doing anything for their victims, uh -huh. which is also sadly something we've seen a lot of. I, I actually, like, th th this movie is briefly and sometimes occasionally shocking. I think the final yeah. shot is going to really, they had no way of knowing how prescient it would be, <laughs> but the final shot yeah. is going to make you go, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I don't want to ruin it for you. And and there's some uh, there's like nudity and there's some pornographic yeah. images yeah. sort of sprinkled throughout. But it's not, not like not, not to titillate. It's part no. of this kind of like collage of of images that was going on at the time to do with music and art and underground and poverty yeah. and sex and it's just all mixed together. Yeah, but like this movie feels like required viewing just in general. Oh, absolutely, it is as as great cinema. Yes, this yeah. is absolutely awesome punk rock not just because it has great music not just because it has like cool early appearances like this is eric bogosian's first movie mm -hmm. and Catherine bigelow co-stars in it um before she started i think it was before she started directing right yeah she, she, directed she, she, she was acting in this one yeah um i know she didn't direct this i was curious mm -hmm. i know she started directing in the early 80s i remember she'd already done something but um it's exciting to see what someone was doing just completely on the edge where they're using like you know the the leftover ends of film reels in order to film this thing so like there's a lot of variation in the stock and the quality of it but that just ends up making it feel like this incredible tapestry in which you're just you are there as a revolution gets started and as it evolves from shock jocks on the radio trying to make sure that people know what that there are real issues at hand here and resulting in, hopefully, somewhere down the line, actual social change. Mm -hmm. But also completely cognizant of the fact that this is, unfortunately, a system that is completely set up to keep various peoples down. And we get to see the conversations people are having about it, about how we need to change this. But how do we do that? There's a million different ways to try. And there's, there's no clear path to success. And those are conversations people are having right now. Yeah. And this is a conversation people have always been having. And hopefully it's not a conversation people will always have, although it's a decent chance that's the case. And this movie is completely just engraved in a moment that is sadly perpetual. Like, it's just, this is rebellion. Mm. This is the conversation about rebellion. This is an act of rebellion. This is this is an instruction on rebellion. It is, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, you're gonna watch this. And again, this is a short. This is short. This is like what is this? Like ninety minutes? It's a, it's under ninety minutes. It's under ninety yeah. minutes long, and yet it feels incredibly dense and full of ideas and story. And again, if this were made two years ago, it would be considered like one of the most relevant movies of the decade. Hmm. As it stands, it's one of the most relevant movies of the last 50 years. <laughs> I am absolutely stunned I hadn't seen this before. I am disappointed that I hadn't seen this before. Someone should have like grabbed me by the shoulders and said, Bibbs, you gotta see Born in Flames! Do it! Slap! They uh, slapped well, me in the face with a DVD. I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. Well, well, I didn't slap you, but I told you to go see it. You did. You did. Was, I, I you should slap me. I projected it. You could have seen it on the big screen. When was this? This was uh, about a year and a half ago. Well, I guess oh, yeah. longer than that because time stopped. But uh, yeah, true. Fair enough. Well, in any case, I fucked up. Yeah, but uh, fortunately, it's on Ovid and uh, also Criterion. Yeah, uh, I think it's on Canopy as well. I think uh, it might be on Canopy. It might be on Canopy, and I know you can. I think if you want to pay an extra fee, I think you can even rent it through Amazon. Yeah, but uh, get that Ovid subscription because it's sure. worth it. Yeah.
And if this is the kind of cinema that excites you, yeah, you should definitely check out Ovid mm-hmm. because it's full of stuff like this. But um, whatever you do, don't miss this. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it's just it's it's fucking lightning in a bottle, and it's damn, it's wonderful, really wonderful. It's a wonderful so glad movie. I saw it. Uh, we've had a couple of like really like heavy uh, streaming club offerings in a row, so we decided we would mix it up a little bit. So next time on the critically acclaimed streaming club. Uh, we're going to have a poll and the poll went up late. The poll actually like, it's just going up like when this goes live. So you have plenty of time to vote for it. Um, the poll will be, uh, sci-fi fantasy films on HBO max. (laughs) And that aren't Godzilla that aren't Godzilla. And, uh, again, every one of these movies is a film that at least one of us hasn't seen, or maybe saw when they were five years old and don't remember it. Like we'll cut it slack. Uh, and your options are, Zack Snyder's The Legend of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul, which is a fascist allegory starring owls. It's an animated film directed by Zack Snyder. Yep. Uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the third film in the Mad Max series. You may recall it's the one with a Thunderdome in it. Well, maybe not, because they do go beyond it. Maybe they just drive past the Thunderdome. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it, so I don't know if there's a Thunderdome in it. Uh, next up, we have the Will Smith post-apocalyptic story, I Am a Legend. That's the one in which Will Smith is a legend. And then lastly... It's where, where a virus has turned everybody in the world into a ghoul. And then lastly, we have Shelley Long in Hello Again. <laughs> and that one, Shelley Long, chokes on a piece of chicken and dies, but comes back as a ghost to annoy people. Uh, no, she doesn't come back as a ghost. She's resurrected. Oh, she's resurrected? Like, people can see her and interact with her. She comes back. Oh, clearly, like I said, I saw this, like, once when I was four. Okay. <laughs> so I have, again, I remember Shelley Long falling into, like, like a like a fountain, maybe? And, like, that's it. That's all I got. And I remember that she was dead. Like, that's it. Those are the two things I remember about it. So, I might be able to see Hello again, again, and be able to correct this. Because if there's one thing I love, it's it's my wife and partner, I'm Lapis de Silva. But if there's two things I love... It's M. Lopez, Silva, and Luca. But if there's three things I love, Aww. it's also Shelley Long. She's very funny. <laughs> um, so uh, that's coming up next week on Critically Acclaimed. Uh, also, before next week, we're going to have a very special bonus episode of this. Uh, we were going to do, uh, on this episode, uh, reviews of all of the Academy Award-nominated short films. However, that's 15 films. It's a long conversation. We didn't want to like completely overshadow everything else we talked about. So we're going to do a very special critically acclaimed bonus episode, probably tomorrow, uh, dedicated exclusively to all the Oscar-nominated short films. Yeah. Uh, if you want to know, like these are categories where a lot of people watch the Oscars and go, what are those? And if you don't have the time or you're not super interested in maybe watching them for yourselves, but you do want to know all about them, that will be the podcast for you. And if you are seeking them out, we're going to actually be able to have a conversation about it because... Sadly, not enough people watch them. So if you do watch them, it might be hard to have like a conversation about like what you thought about them. So we really want to give them their due. They're cinema. They're exciting cinema, and we love reviewing them every single year. And uh, that's it. That's, that's it. the joke. Uh, we're on we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. You can email us about anything we discussed on this episode or anything else you want to talk about. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. We may read your email and answer it on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. 
Uh, we also, again, have a Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We have a ton of exclusive shows, many of which we discussed in this particular podcast, like our Star Trek series, All Our Yesterdays. Uh, we also have Holy Batman, review every single Batman, shows about the Oscars, shows about Disney, commentary tracks. We just did one for Howard the Duck. We're going to do one later this month for Batman and Robin. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot going on over there. I want to give a very special thank you to all of our patrons. And uh, as always, I encourage you to check out uh, the Etsy store. M. Lapis de Silva and I have Salt Cat Soap. We just dropped a lot of new soap designs on that store. Uh, some of them designed by me. But also a lot of them designed by M. Lapis de Silva. And hers are even fancier. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, I, I'm catching up. I'm playing catch up. But uh, I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, people have been really enjoying the soaps. And that means a lot to us. And uh, hey, stick around. I might even uh, debut a couple more uh, designs before the end of the month. Um, so yeah, Salt Cat Soap over on Etsy. Salt Cat Soap on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Whitney? Yes, William? Goodbye. We'll see you soon. Everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>